Good day and welcome to the Frontline Chatter Podcast. My name is Jarian Gibson with co-host Andrew Morgan. And today we have Kevin Goodman of FS Logics. Uh, before we get started, how are you doing today, Andy? I'm doing good, Jarian. I'm doing good. Uh, just about survived Synergy. Barely survived E2EVC. Uh, so um, it's, been a, it's been a busy couple of weeks of conferences, but uh, yeah, I'm good, man. How are you? Um, I'm good, too, and I can completely understand. I went from Synergy to ETE Orlando to London and then to next last week, so I'm pretty much conferenced out for a while. I think I got my fill until next month. Here, I can actually blame. I'm, I'm actually going to go on the, on the live radio and blame my, both my wife and Remco for keeping me out until 5 a.m. when I had a presentation to do at 9 a.m. That was painful. I'm actually looking forward to seeing the video uh, from E2EVC because you'll see me pause a number of times when I try to regain my composure. <laughs> but it, it was all in good fun, guys. Well, that, that, that's all right. During ETE Orlando, I was pretty much sick as a dog, and I just had to power through it, so I, I feel your pain there. Um, but moving on to things, let's welcome our guest today. Um, good morning, Kevin. How you doing? Good morning, Jerry, and I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, so today we have um, Kevin Goodman of FS Logics. You know, kind of tell us about um, where you've been, you know, RTO, VMware, FS Logics. So kind of kind of give us a background on, on where you started and your path today to CEO of FS Logics. Sure, I'd be glad to. So uh, RTO started out back in 2000, um, and it was a company that right when Citrix was getting started with Metaframe, we figured out a way to uh, increase the session density on um, Citrix. Uh, I was actually in a dot bomb that died right there in 2000 after, uh, you know, when that uh, technology crash happened and I had to find something to do and um, RTO is it. We, I was in RTO for 10 years. I started out just as the uh, uh, developer and then they made me CEO back in 2005 and then we came up with a couple of products that T-Scale was a product that increased session density on Citrix and um, another product called Virtual Profiles and a third one called Pinpoint. The Ladder 2 caught the eye of VMware, and they acquired us in 2010. Um, Pinpoint is now VCOps Review. Those same guys that built Pinpoint at RTO are um, still working there at, at VMware. Uh, virtual Profiles became View Persona, and uh, I was uh, in product management VMware for two years and, and got to see on on that side of the curtain how the software was made. Fantastic company. That uh, was a lot of travel. You guys are talking about travel. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I um, commuted to Palo Alto. No matter how great a company is, um, at some point in time, you know, you have family and all these other things. So I, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. So I, I left, told myself I was retired, um, stayed retired six weeks. Yeah, so then Randy Cook called me and um, he and I sat down and had a conversation and it, it, it started into a, a real complaint session about what is wrong with virtual desktops uh, today and, and why can't we get to non-persistent desktops? And before you knew it, Randy and I were um, talking about how we could fix these things. So Randy Cook uh, probably has 32 patents or more in application streaming. And, um, you know, he's from Symantec. Uh, RTO and Symantec got along really well when we did our OEM agreement together. And before you knew it, he and I hatched a plan to solve these problems to get people 
so they could do large-scale, non-persistent VDI. Of course, we know you're still going to want to do ZenApp. You're still going to want to do persistent VDI. In some cases, uh, we know we have some customers today who are using physical, but that's how we, that's how FS Logics came to be. Yeah, a nice, a nice background, you know, with uh, you and a couple of founders, you know, from RTO, you know, VMware, Semantic, you know, you guys getting together and, and coming out with FS Logics. Um, I just want to say congrats as well. You guys recently just won, you know, the Best of Synergy Award for application and, and desktop uh, virtualization category, along with um, another recent round of funding. So congrats on, on, on those two things and good to see FS Logics going strong. Yeah, well, well, thank you. We're real uh, proud of the work that everybody at FS Logics put in. Guys are, are working really hard, and it um, it's a cliche to say, though, it sounds like it's easy, though, because we know we're solving problems that people have. When they came by the booth, just n- not even the award, but when just Citrix attendees came by the booth, we are solving use cases that they have, and um, that makes it fun to work in an organization and and uh, that engineering group that Randy Cook is running, you know, they're, they're working very, very hard and they really put out a great product. And um, what I'm most proud of, though, is most startups are just solutions desperately seeking problems. FS Logics is solving problems that everybody seems to have, whether it's from I have a, a issues with getting my applications into the base image, I have silos, I have. Um, uh, folder, folder redirection issues. What I think is, uh, you mentioned the most recent round of funding as well. I think the investors, uh, Jerry, they see the same things that the guys who gave us the best of Synergy Award um, see. So, and that is that uh, FS Logic solves many problems that the uh, that are out there in the customers that have from from. Uh, um, issues with your profiles, issues with your applications, and just inability to scale your virtual desktops up. I, I mean, if there's two people I don't have to tell anything to, it's uh, you two, right, Andrew and Jarian, that if, um, if you could do more virtual desktops, you would cut the cost down per desktop. But today, the problems are labor in doing so, and it's just it's become too difficult to get large-scale VDI out there. Oh yeah, d- definitely. I've seen it just recently with the customer I referred you guys about, you know, just the profile piece you guys have, and we'll, we'll kind of dig in here to an overview of FS Logics for our listeners. But yeah, it, it's it's solving problems and, and helping, you know, a lot of customers' environments where they might have roadblocks, whether it, it's profiles or applications or, or both. So it, it's it's great to see FS Logics come out and and going strong. Absolutely, and I mean, if you look at your if you look at your backstory, I mean, it's a veritable who's who of the industry from Semantic to VMware and onwards. And the problems you're tackling aren't new problems; they're they're the same problems we've been happening we've been having since back in 2000, and they haven't been solved in a in a reliable manner. So yeah, again, just to echo what Jerry and said, congratulations on your on your awards. I really felt you deserved it, and I'm looking forward to seeing the next cool thing coming from you. Uh, awesome, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, so from, you know, FS Logics, you know, app containers, profile containers, um, for our listeners, can you give us an overview of, of FS Logics and kind of, you know, FS Logics 1.0 to what we're seeing today with the new features you're coming out with? Yeah, and um, <clears throat> just to tell you, it's exactly what Andrew said. These are not new problems. They're the same problems that have plagued us. Uh, but let's go back, uh, you know, back even to the RTO days. 
One of the members on our advisory board is a gentleman named Tim Mangan, who is one of the founders of Softricity. And Softricity back in the year 2000 was solving the problem that applications have a hard time um, uh, for users on Citrix or any multi-user system like that to um, be deployed for the users for a couple of reasons. Back then, disk space was prohibitively expensive. So you didn't want to fill up a bunch of base images and have a bunch of silos if you could avoid it. So uh, Tim and team came up with what they call application virtualization. Uh, on another, on a, in another country, in another state, uh, Randy Cook is coming up with what he calls uh, application streaming. That's where all of his patents came from. The whole idea is simple. Let's start with a generic Windows image and build it up at runtime based on who is uh, using the system. So if you have a user who is uh, creating PDFs, you might build up a system for them that has Adobe Acrobat. If you have a user that's just consuming PDFs, you might build a system for them that just has Reader. And this is um, the, uh, the, this was the, the modus operandi for many, many years. Uh, at VMware, we called it the composite desktop. VMware, of course, had ThinApp. Now, everyone knows Softricity turned um, into AppV, was acquired by Microsoft. Um, uh, Hendrik Rosendahl and, and Jonathan at Thinstall, which was acquired by VMware and became ThinApp. And the whole idea is we're going to deliver your application to you at runtime. Now, the problems that they were solving sometimes the uh, cure is worse than the solution. In order to deliver an app at <laughs> runtime, I mean, think about it. In order to deliver an app at runtime, you have to spoof the system into thinking you have administrative privileges. So if your application needs during its install to write to program files or it needs to write to HKey local machine, Oh boy, we got to step in front of that and intercept those calls because a non-administrative user can't do those things. So quite frankly, it's some of the most ingenious software I've seen come out in the last 10 years is this whole idea of we'll sequence the application, find out what calls it's going to make, and then we'll package up a layer around the application that intercepts these calls and makes the application think it's residing in program files, uh, uh, Microsoft Office directory, when in fact the user without administrative uh, level privileges doesn't have permission to write there. Very, very ingenious way of doing it. All right, so what are the side effects? One of the side effects is I got to get that sequencing and packaging correct. And there are people, there are companies out there today, it requires a lot of expertise to get that sequencing and packaging correct. The other problem is it doesn't work for all applications. And if it worked for all applications, we might not have come out with our FS logics apps piece because, well, although it takes a lot of expertise, they solved the problem with that V and thin app and you know, semantic um, streaming, but it doesn't. And the reason why is you get in this chicken and egg thing. All right. I have to know who the user is to know which applications they need, but some app applications need to be there prior to the user logging on. Those would be applications that need to put in services or drivers into the system in order to, to function correctly. So you get this situation where um, 
a lot of apps you just can't package because of that need. Uh, it's no uh, coincidence that I brought up Adobe Acrobat because that is one of the applications that gives the, the packagers uh, a bit of consternation because it has um, drivers in it. So I what do you more do? Than, I think it's more than just drivers, though. I, mean, I just want to go on the record and say Adobe Reader and the entire suite absolutely suck. I mean, the, the, the drivers required to do it, the licensing model that's required to do it, the, all the different plays that it has into all the different Office products, it's, it's, it's one of the worst pieces of software that is absolutely required on everybody's desktop. And, you know, just to echo as well what you said around, the, you know, the, the level of skill required to package an application. I mean, I think it was um, Logging Consultants who published the first white paper called The Zen of Sequencing an Application, because it is that bloody difficult. And, you know, there is a serious skill set required to do it. Oh, it's an art, not a science, pretty much. It, you know, it, it's an art because it's going to probably take you a couple times and, you know, going through different techniques. And, and so it's not, it's not straightforward. It's not straightforward, pretty much. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And it, it, it requires the level of expertise of somebody like Tim Mangan or Rory Mond or somebody else like that. And those guys exist out there, but they, um, you know, it, it, it's expensive. And Randy and I sat down and said, there's got to be another way. There's just... There's just got to be another way. First of all, if you think about this application and virtualization, it's two pieces. There is the, the, the sequence to spoof administrative privileges, but then after that, there is an isolation piece that's actually quite useful in all these application virtualization um, products, and that is the ability, once the application is running, to isolate it from maybe other applications within the um, system. How does that help? Well, one way it helps is you could have um, a situation where you don't want to have to regression test 10 applications each time one of them changes. And if you could isolate those applications, you could be pretty much assured they won't step on each other. Um, back when first introduced, there was DLL hell, right? And you might want to make sure your application's DLLs didn't step on another application's DLLs. You guys remember DLL hell, don't you? Oh, yeah, the fun I, days. I have the scars <laughs> to show. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, but fast forward to today and look what we're looking at. And keep in mind, VMware was owned by, still is owned by EMC. And as a product manager, I was on there. Um, the, the team that interacted with uh, EMC, and they told us cheap storage is coming down the pipeline. There's going to be a lot of vendors out there, um, and we are um, going to solve the problem of storage being the roadblock to you doing VDI. You know, when, like in 2010, uh, I was product manager for View 5.0, and I can remember the QA people telling us that um, we're, we're going to fail this round of testing because an application is taking more than 10 IOPS. And I went, ballistic. What application would take 10 IOPS? That's going to ruin the whole release. And we had to go track that application down. I found out it was pulling a registry rather than um, getting a notification when the registry changed. It was important to save IOPS. Well, you know, here we are in 2015, and you've got a, a variety of um, products out there that's going to make your IOPS problem a, a thing of tomorrow for most customers. And I say most because we still have some customers, based on where they are advertising their storage investment, haven't been able to take um, advantage of some of the new hyperconverged storage out there and inline file deduplication. Um, 
But uh, would you guys agree with that? Storage is cheaper uh, today than it was back then? Oh, yes, I agree. Yeah, and as you mentioned, hyperconverged has kind of made the whole thing less painful. But the, the the art of sizing your storage, not only from a capacity but also from a throughput point of view, was was there. There was a reason we studied this for a very long time and had a number of successes, along with a number of failures. So yes, I'd absolutely agree with you. Yeah. So the first thing we said, if if storage is cheap, we need to turn this upside down on its head. If we're going to go do a company, we really got to be. You know, I don't. I didn't want to be a me too with AppV and or ThinApp and say, well, we're going to instead of getting ninety five percent of the apps out there, we're going to get ninety eight. I want to say, well, let's let's look at it from a different direction. Why wouldn't we just let the administrators install the applications natively and let the users run them natively? If we did that, then we know the applications can install because, well, you know, that's how the product was made. As an MSI, it installs. Um, well, the one thing happens is the, the base image gets really large. Well, if storage isn't that expensive anymore and, and you're using, you know, link clones or PVS to, um, to, to get your images out to your users, that shouldn't be a problem either, except for the isolation. Now we're going to run into a situation where, wow, we're going to have silos all over the place if you were to do this because uh, Adobe Reader and and Acrobat don't belong on the same system. If I don't have an Acrobat license and I just want to consume PDFs, uh, I really am not allowed to be on that system. Somehow you're going to have to isolate that from me. So Randy Cook architected an isolation engine. And this isolation engine is the second half of application virtualization. So you install the applications into the base image now. And the second half of isolation, you build a, a, you know, a simple communication uh, between the application, the user, and uh, a rule set that says who is going to be allowed to see this application. And as simple as that, we'll install all the applications into the base image, and we have some best practices to tell you which, how to get multiple versions of the same app into the, uh, into the system. And then using a simple set of rules, We'll tie that application to like Active Directory groups or users, and local directory groups or users too, if you so prefer, even, on, even based on IP address or um, things like that. We can then say when a user logs in, they're only going to see the applications that belong to them. Those um, applications that... Uh, don't belong to them will look like they've been deinstalled from the system. Make sense? Makes perfect sense. And, you know, it's funny because, I mean, the industry went, went you know, completely head into, into um, isolation and streaming with ThinApp and AppFee a couple of years ago. And then people realized, actually, you know what, this is very difficult. Um, why don't we look at some kind of layering solution that we can just natively install it into? But then they realized that, oh, hold on a second, now all my apps can see each other and I've lost the isolation there. So, yeah, I mean, what I, what I love about what you guys do in, in your application cloaking or application shielding is that you don't have to install a big, clunky UEM product to get this benefit. Your product is extremely simple to use and easy to use, and it's not... I don't have to change how my profiles work. I don't have to change how my, my user environment works. I just have to install your product and then, you know, using your best practices, I isolate them off. So, yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, and so we have a couple of uh, mantras here in the company. 
Randy Cook is, there will never be a person in an organization, if he gets his way, if he meets his design goals, there'll never be a guy that works for a company out there that has FS Logics in his title. So there will never be the certified FS Logics engineer at XYZ company because it shouldn't require that much expertise to run the product. You know, this should be something that you, you, you connect users to applications, to Active Directory groups, and be done with it, um, which means you have to have um, a, a lot of things that you do ahead of time. And um, that would be what we call the rule editor, right? The, the rule editor is how you define which applications are going to be visible for which users. Want me to tell you more about that, that rule editor? Should I go into that now? I think so, yeah, because I think the way your real editor works is, is, is really sharp. Um, so, yeah, please do. Okay, so the typical thinking is, here's what we'll do. We'll get you to get an app, uh, a, a base image, a, a fresh instance of Windows 7, 8, 10, um, 2008, 2012, and then um, AppVert, what they tell you to do is install our stuff, our monitoring pieces, install your application. We'll monitor what gets installed, and then... Um, we'll use that as a basis uh, for our sequencing and our packaging. And um, that's a lot of times where some of the expertise comes in that you need. Um, it's a wonderful idea. Um, applications, though, and I don't know why, uh, honestly, I'm not a sequencer, I'm not a packager. I've just sat there on the other end. I have been at a VMworld before where a customer with um, tens of thousands of seats has told us that their um, application virtualization solution failed them because they were missing a DLL. They didn't know they were missing this DLL until the end of the year when they went to close the books on, with their accounting app. And um, then the DLL wasn't there. And unfortunately, it caused the application to crash. Um, we do it the other way. Install the application into the base image. Take our product to any base image that you have that's already got the application installed and you run um, our, our rule editor, it will go out and query. And now think of it conceptually this way, uh, gentlemen. It's conceptually, we read the uninstalled MSI and find out what this application would do if it needed to uninstall. So the application knows which pieces it needs to hide from the system or delete from the system when it's uninstalling. And that's how we build our, our rule set. And so it's just a set of, if you look at it, it's just going to be um, files, registry entries, com objects, things like that, that need to be deregistered or deinstalled from the system to um, re remove this application. Now I say conceptually because we've got some patent-pended secret sauce in there that does more than that because you'll find certain um, applications put a file in one place have Windows, uh, they notify Windows where those files are, and Windows may do a copy and confuse a lot of sequencers and packagers. There's a lot of DLLs that do uh, load other DLLs that confuse sequencers and packagers. They're getting better every year. Every, every time I turn around, the sequencers and packagers get better. But it's still, like you said, Jarian, a art, not a science. And we try to take that right out of the equation. Uh, it shouldn't be an art. Yeah, and I think, too, one of the, the neat things you guys have in your product as well is that the Java redirection piece also because I, I know I've come across this in environments where you have several different versions of Java and trying to make applications use the right version of Java. And 
So you guys also have a solution for that as well. So if you think about it, so it's an isolation piece. We can isolate processes, um, registry entries, files, directories, keys from each other. Um, why not versions of Java? It was, uh, this was actually suggested to us by a customer because we're saying, hey, we're going to reduce all your silos. And he goes, the only reason I have silos is because I have different versions of Java out there. And um, what we came up with this Java redirection is just a, a variation on this theme of isolation, but we actually now tie versions of Java to URLs. So you can have a URL in one tab of IE that goes to that internal app that is stuck on Java 6, you know, update 35 or whatever, that you know is safe, but you don't want that user going outside and hitting the outside world with that same version of Java 6. So what you had to do in the past is some type of isolation, either either put it in its ILO and Citrix and publish it, or you know doing something like an application virtualization and isolating it there. And this just skips the need for all that. The next tab can have Java seven. The next tab can have Java eight. The tab after that can have four. And you know each of them will be isolated from each other. And then if you start start up a new tab, you're getting the latest version of of, of Java. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it, I was just going to say, it's a great feature. And any house that, that uses Oracle or IBM is going to be all over that. I mean, because we've all been there. We've all had these bespoke applications or web apps that have been hanging around for years, but nobody wants to touch because the tax involved to upgrade it is just massive. Uh, you know, you demo this, this idea to them and they absolutely jump over themselves to get access to it. So it's a great feature. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So our salesmen will bring that up, you know, when they're on calls and stuff like that. You guys got any issues with Java? And uh, they, a lot of times customers, nah, nah, no issues with Java. And uh, they said, all right, well, I won't show you our browser with three different versions of Java in it, then we'll just move on. Wait, 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 all in one <laughs> browser? Oh, so we don't have any issues because we've siloed all our versions of Java and it's a real pain in the neck. And so, yeah, we'll skip all that. They, you know, we're trying to save you time and effort here. Uh, you know, to get down to it, the one point, you know, and I will, I will add in on, on Randy. So we'll, the reason you make this simple and the reason this product is, is getting traction is because the most expensive equation today is labor. It's the people cost. You know, there are a lot of smart Citrix guys out there. Gosh, we see them every year at the conferences. Um, they cost a lot of money. They're worth it, too. They're worth every penny. But let's get them on the real um, interesting problems in scaling our, our, our system out rather than worrying about whether Java 6 is uh, uh, going to be uh, infiltrating the organization too long and, and just get past those types of silly issues. Yeah, so, you know, going from, you know, where you guys started, you know, with the rule sets and the, and the editor and the job redirection, you were installing everything in the image. And now with, with the later version, you, you can kind of offload that to kind of save some of the the, the space on, on the actual image and you can do like a, a Mount VHD process. Can you kind of talk about that with us? Yeah, so we call those our app containers. And so we would go see customers, and the customers would um, say, yeah, that's wonderful, but we're in a cycle, the buying cycle, in which we don't have optimized storage yet. So we don't have one of the um, really cool new products that are out there that do inline file deduplication. Uh, we've got our own spinning disk and an image size uh, you know, of 150 or 200 gig, like you're telling us your other customers have, is is really out of our 
realm of possibilities right now. So what we did, and, and, and really in this version, we just made it easier. Since, since all we are is an engine that can redirect or hide um, uh, resources, we just made it really easy for you to redirect what um, would be a, a, a subdirectory in program files off to a VHD. Now, of course, because I've got one of the best marketing guys on earth, we call them app containers because in containers is hot now, right? That's the, the big hot buzzword now. But that's basically what it so is. So hot right now. Yeah, you, <laughs> that's what it is. You cleave off a piece of your program files and you put it into a VHD. And when a user goes to, or when anything in the system goes to hit that, let's say it was program files Adobe, then we'll load that VHD up inside the guest at that point in time. So um, I, I emphasize inside the guest because um, doing this at the hypervisor level sometimes causes you scalability issues, and you eliminate those scalability issues if you do it inside the guest. Got it completely. And then, of course, I mean, obviously, aside from the application layers as well, you guys also do profiles now, don't you? So we got a bug report came in. This is on our, our, uh, our 1.5 version. Yeah, I got a bug report. I, I redirected a folder. And what we initially put this uh, redirection isolation in there for is uh, imagine you're going from Windows XP to, to Citrix Zen app, and you had an app that wrote to C colon backslash uh, access.mdb. And that just isn't going to cut it on a multi-user system. So we have the ability to redirect that, and we would redirect that um, database file back into the user's profile. And that's a feature that uh, you know everybody takes advantage of in um, FSLogic's apps. This is how we handle our file type associations, right? So if I have one user who is using... Uh, Adobe Reader, they want to get the reader icon and have the right file type association. And if, if another user on the exact same base image is using Acrobat, they want the Acrobat icon. And people are persnickety about that, right? So we had one customer who just said, I'm just going to redirect C user's username off onto the internet. And I'm going to do this little uh, uh, backdoor way of doing roaming profiles. And it failed. And one of the reasons it failed is um, NTUser.dat does not like being on um, a non-local disk. So the thought was, how do we solve this guy's problem? And that is what we call profile containers in, in version 2.0. So inside the guest, just the same way you do an app container, when the system sees a request to go to see user's user's name, we'll attach a VHD. And we got some secret sauce in there because, you know, we have to jump inside of uh, uh, um, the logon service and, and connect up right after they've uh, authenticated. And we have to do some other um, stuff to optimize the file usage in there. But basically, uh, a user logs in, and if you go and inspect the system with, like, uh, disk management, you'll see that they have a VHD attached right where their uh, C user's uh, username should be. Looks like a local profile to the user, um, but has, uh, has a whole lot of benefits that um, uh, you don't get with a local profile, don't get with a roaming profile, and quite frankly... It solves a bunch of problems that exist out there with uh, a lot of the other solutions that are out there. 
So kind of like Windows, uh, when, you know, in 2012 when they introduced user, user uh, profile disk, but obviously not limited to Windows and obviously not crap <laughs> like Microsoft did. So, yeah, no, I, I really, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I mean, obviously we spoke about kind of redirected folders on the network drives and we spoke about how much pain and there's been a lot of talk from, from Aaron and from Helga and from Sean around us. I mean, obviously with your user profile solution, it's just a single file. Yeah, so... So yeah, and and uh, um, I know the the from from looking on social media and just talking to people. I know the listeners of this podcast are you know the really on the far right side of the bell curve as far as their experience and intelligence and knowledge of what's going on in the system. But just in case one person's out there that doesn't realize, folder redirection is just that that just like it sounds. You think you have a local copy of uh, any one of, uh, uh, gosh, it's probably 20 folders that um, Microsoft calls user shell folders, um, your start menu, your desktop, your my documents, your app data, all of these items. And it, all it's really doing is saying there is going to be a uh, network share that has these folders, and when the user goes to get them locally, we'll actually redirect them over to the network share. And we see countless problems with this, and most of it has been documented by exactly what you said, Helge and, and, and Sean, and, and um, there was a funny little tete-a-tete uh, going on between them and, and the guys from Citrix who were saying they were necessary evil and the other ones were saying they were the devil. And basically, if you could eliminate folder redirection within your organization, I think you'd be a happy person. Our profile containers allow you to do that. And the way they allow you to do that is they um, are exactly what you said. It's one file. And the problems that you get when you have all your files over on a file server is that it doesn't matter what kind of storage you have. You have the latest, greatest, um, fastest SSD. The file system over on that file server can only open one file at a time. It has to get the request to open it, look in his handle table, lock it, return a handle, and then move on. So imagine a, a logon storm in which people with hundreds of files um, uh, need to log in, whether they're on their desktop, their start menu, or whatever, you get a backup. And using you know, uh, easily accessible, um, pretty common uh, monitoring tools out there, you can see exactly what this is by looking at your work queue on your file server. If it's up high, if it's over you know, 10, your users are going to see a delay in getting their files. This manifests itself is that dreaded, I logged in, I got the generic icon, and then slowly but surely the actual icons populate across my desktop. I go to hit the start menu and I see these terrible delays. Uh, Helge Klein called it a mini denial of service attack happening in on your file uh, servers. And uh, this doesn't matter whether you're using you know, diskless VDI or any of those other things. If you add in our profile containers, you're going to see a tremendous amount of performance improvement. 
Yeah, no, it's it's good stuff. I mean, any if, if for anybody who's worked in in the industry for any length of time or has worked with Lotus Notes even once, they'll know the pain of redirecting files to a network share. And I think you guys are going to be right on the money now as Windows 10 drops because I mean, obviously SMB3 made life a lot easier for this kind of approach, but nobody really wanted to adopt a Windows 8.1 look and feel. So I think with Windows 10 arrival and you know the improvements in SMB, this kind of user profile approach that'll work across technologies is is going to be killer. So yeah, I'm I'm. Really Really looking forward to the next release uh, of, of Windows to see how well this is going to play together. So uh, an interesting thing that you mentioned Windows 10. So Windows 10 is going to do its file system uh, a little bit differently than we've done in the past. In the past, uh, and I think it started maybe with 2008 or 12, I'm not sure exactly which one, in order to get a uh, file system driver, it, remember the FS and FS logic stands for file system. So we do most of this stuff down at the kernel level mode. And, you know, I told you the, the team I joined uh, up with were all semantic. And if anybody knows it's file system, it's those semantic guys, right? Um, you, in order to get your file system driver to load in, in 2012, it had to be digitally signed. And you could go to VeriSign or any one of your, your you know, uh, authorized signing agencies to get that. Windows 10 is different. We had to get our driver signed by Microsoft. So that is going to cut out a lot of the um, signed drivers that Microsoft doesn't approve of. They have this... Um, call it a conference, but it's this get-together twice a year called PlugFest. Microsoft holds it on their campus, and they invite all of the file uh, drivers to go there, both the, the file system filter drivers and the block drivers and, and, and the like. And they do a thing called interop, in which they put all the drivers onto one machine and run tests and make sure they all get along, okay? And then if that they pass those tests, then you can get your driver signed by Microsoft. So we, we are very um, uh, uh, both proud and relieved that our driver has been accepted by Microsoft for that, for Windows 10. We'll get it signed. It'll be ready and, and shipping when Windows 10 comes out. And, uh, you know, the, the same, same benefits you're getting in the other operating systems you'll get with Windows 10. That's that's fantastic news. Well done uh, to, to FS Logic and to you, Kevin, for, for getting that done. Coming from a, a background where we, I've been involved with storage level drivers before, I know how difficult they can be to, to get sign off. So for you to be ready at, at release, that is that is a big achievement. Yeah, and so um, we're you know we're startup. Uh, you know I would say half of the people who came by the Synergy booth, maybe more, said, "Oh, I've never heard of you." You know, so. Um, we'd tell them what we do, and they say, well, what does Microsoft think of this? And, you know, with Windows 10 coming out now and them signing our drivers, well, we ran through our tests. They approve. Uh, you know, we're not doing – all we're doing is enforcing your licensing. So, you know, I could see why Windows, Microsoft, if, if we were big enough to even get on their radar, why they would approve. But this isn't a concrete example of we ran their driver through their – just like, you know, if you can get an app out of the App Store – from uh, Apple, you know that it has gone through some testing from from Apple to be able to be in that App Store. Same thing you're going to know with our Windows uh, 10 product. It has gone through the equivalent, and now you can download that driver and uh, be assured that it's run some tests through Microsoft. So, yeah, we're looking forward to Windows 10 as well because I, I personally have not never touched a key on a keyboard that had Windows 8 installed. I've seen it, but I've never actually used it. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, so, again, you know, congrats on the 
the upcoming Windows 10 support, and that kind of leads us into about you know kind of kind of tell us what's next for FS Logics. You know, can you kind of give us kind of like a uh, overview of some of your upcoming features? You know, Windows 10 support. Um, what else can we look forward to? So one of the things that that I think you can uh, expect to see out of us is that these app containers. While they they help you save disk space, um, they actually require you to install the application into the base then cleave off the, the directory tree that you're interested in. Uh, many of our customers have asked for the ability to just attach a container to um, an image that had never had the application installed on it. So you can expect that to come out of us out of our roadmap. But in general, the other things that we're looking at are looking at how we can make non-persistent VDI a reality. And if we get there to where that it becomes a no-brainer that you would use non-persistent VDI because you have a product like FS Logics in your toolkit, then I think we've succeeded. Now, does that mean we don't want to sell to you if you've got uh, Zen App or Physical or anything else like that? No, but if we get the product so that a um, it, it works and makes non-persistent VDI uh, scale infinitely then you can bet it's going to work on your RDSH or your Zen app servers. You can bet it's still going to work really well on your physical desktops and stuff like that. But that's where we're thinking and brainstorming when we, um, when we go through this. Awesome. I mean, the, not the persistent and non-persistent arguments. Jerry, actually, I remember back at Synergy 2012 where we did a presentation on yeah. that topic. <laughs> and I, I attributed persistent desktops to people being lazy um, I think I even made a comment about people on, you know, those micro buggies that you see people over in America riding around on. And I remember for the rest of the conference, people were clipping my heels on those things. So <laughs> it's, a, it's an well, argument that's very close to my heart. <laughs> well, if you think about it, that's what the industry has been telling everybody. When we were at, at VMware, the customers would tell us, we want to treat our virtual desktops the same as we treat our physical desktops. We want to be able to, you know, just use our existing tools to update and to patch and to monitor and stuff like that. And, you know, some of the really smart guys within um, VMware said, you know, if VMware thought like that the whole time, we'd, you know, we'd... Um, never have come up with virtualization because people would have just wanted us to make DOS better. You know, that is not innovative, people. Let's be innovative. And I, I, I think you're I, I, I think you're right. You you have to show them a better way on how they're going to either save money, time, labor, you know, in order to get them to move. If uh, non-persistent desktops cost as much as, or more than persistent desktops or physical desktop, who's going to bother? But if it can be that much cheaper that you can instant on, you know, and onboard thousands of users immediately and then scale them back down when they're not using it and become very, very elastic and be able to manage it with as few as people as possible. I mean, that's that's where we that's our design goals that we have in mind for the future. That's where our roadmap takes us. We want to be that company that you rely on to help you get there. So, yeah, so very nice. So. You know, one thing we like to um, do on, on all of our uh, guests we have on the podcast is kind of, you know, away from FS Logics, you know, kind of away from what you do every day. You know, what market or technology are you, you know, you really watching right now at the moment and what excites you about it? Well, um, I would have to say the one technology that I don't, I don't think we've taken advantage of yet 
is the Bitcoin technology. And I'm not talking just exactly about using this uh, virtual currency uh, to trade back and forth, but the underlying technology that's underneath it. Now, I have to say, everything I've learned about this, I've learned from my co-founder, uh, Randy Cook. But basically, that technology, the ability to have this public key, private key, and do transactions, really, I believe, is going to color our future with how we do things. Think if that is um, you know, the methods that we used in the future to communicate um, company to company. Um, you realize that there is a whole lot of room for innovation in there. Uh, I'm not on the consumer side. Uh, of things. I've always been on the enterprise side of things, but I could see identity theft going away forever if we figured out a way to use that whole blockchain technology to um, give out um, public information and private information once you've authenticated with me to the fact that, you know, we can make our uh, social security numbers that we hear, have here in the U.S., Andrew, that, that once it gets stolen, your identity gets stolen from you. Uh, we could change that into a system where uh, that can never happen again. It's, it's not me that's going to do it, but I'm watching it. Um, and uh, we're constantly looking at FS logics of ways we could apply that same technologies out into the enterprise market. And uh, who knows, you may see something from us in the, in the future, what we called apps. It may be a different product, but you may see something from us in the future yet that we haven't quite gotten all the patents uh, done for. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's one of the ideas that we have right now that uh, that's always intriguing to me. Anytime I see anything about Bitcoin, uh, I start reading it now. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought about it. And when you look at it, instead of the whole currency side of it and the and the mining of it, just just the the exchange piece and you know how it can make me help us in everyday lives and in the enterprise. So that that's a very interesting take on on your thoughts on Bitcoin. So yeah, I'll be watching that now as well because that does kind of, kind of intrigue me on after listening to you talk about that. Yeah, so um yeah, so that that's pretty much it. The other thing is and this is uh it's a technology I'm I'm not looking at improving that I just have fun playing with it is uh drones. We gave away two drones at um Citrix Synergy and um other than imploring the people to drone responsibly and not to drink and drone, we um <laughs> we <laughs> <laughs> we really enjoyed seeing the videos they sent back of, of what they've done with it, you know, and some smart guys are going to come out there and figure out how to use, uh, you know, I know we're always hearing on the uh, uh, on the news about Amazon's going to deliver with it and stuff like that. But I think there's some kids in the garage right now are going to find uses for drones that you and I haven't thought of yet that are really going to change things. So I'm looking forward to seeing that take place, too. Oh, I couldn't agree with you on the drone side. It's actually a, it's actually an industry that I'm following closely, um, and my brother-in-law is also involved. And uh, I mean, I was talking to an ordnance survey person recently, and he has to rent a plane every time he wants to do a survey of a particular area for whoever his client is. And he's realised recently, obviously, with a drone, he can do that same survey without having to rent a plane, go out, get in the plane, spend the jet fuel, do everything else. So yeah, I think drones are. They're, they're, they're a necessity, and they, they have, they've been a thing of science fiction for the longest amount of time, and they're finally becoming a reality. So, yeah, I'm, I'm watching the drones very closely, personally. Oh, that's, yeah, I didn't even think, yeah, see, there's another example of it that, I, that absolutely is going to happen because of uh, the economics involved in that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, same type of stuff, absolutely. So kind of closing things out, um, Kevin Goodman, you know, CEO and founder 
of FS Logics. Um, you know, good having you on today. Good, to, good to hear more about the, the product. Um, you know, it, like I said, I've had customer use cases for it. I actually have some stuff going on now with you guys, um, especially on the profile side. Um, so it, it's good to get, uh, introduce you to our listeners if they don't um, know about FS Logics and, and to get that overview. Um, for myself and Andy Morgan, thank you for listening to the Frontline Chatter podcast. Uh, thank you to Kevin for coming on today, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.